I'd like to ask first, Paul, is when you came to the London scene and started becoming active with it, could you describe what was happening? Because that seems in the distance of time and location, it's an extraordinary pool of people that happen to be in the same place at the same time. And I wondered, there's not a lot of documentation about what was going on. And I was wondering if you could give your perspective on what you found there when you started really working with some of the musicians like Evan Parker and whatnot. And like what year it was when you came. Okay. Um, when I first came into contact with uh, Evan, in fact, that, that was in 1966. And it was at a, a gig in Birmingham. And I was playing bongos. <laughs> in a big band. Uh, yeah, I can't believe it either. Okay. Uh, and there was one very interesting thing about that festival. That was the Fleetwood Max. I mean, I'm looking at pe age. I mean, I don't know if anybody not remembers Fleetwood Mac, but that was their very first gig. Um, so that was... I don't know if that was even more important. <laughs> but um, Evan was playing with a, an English drummer who was absolutely um, critical uh, uh, to the scene. His name was John Stevens, and they were playing in a duo. John Stevens had a, a strange drum kit. He had a, a, a child's kit, very small drums, and he had a rack of... Um, Japanese, four Japanese drums sort of lined up here on the side where the um, floor tom is and a big gong and they were into um, slow long kinds of improvisation and John was chattering around on the cymbals I hadn't heard anybody playing like that. I was into, at that time, I guess, um, West Coast jazz. Um, I, I'd been confronted with, by Coltrane, and I couldn't, <coughs> earlier, in the earlier 60s, I couldn't really get with that at that time. And part of that was to do with uh, the teachers who I had, I had private teachers, I went to a drum school called the Jim Marshall Drum School. I don't know if anybody or many people don't know that Jim Marshall, who's very famous for his amps, you see them on all the big rock concerts, but in fact he was a drummer and he invented those amps. And just to put that in perspective, Jimi Hendrix, um, Mitch Mitchell was in, went through that drum school about a year or two years before I did. And like I can remember when uh, Hendrix had started to become big, they were all buzzing with this, you know, we've had a drummer that, okay, that's, all, that's an aside. Then, <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of asides here. I can't focus because I'm going back into my memory and the memories are very dubious things. So. I don't know how much of this is true. Um, <laughs> well, 
I read an interesting quote from George Bush Senior, like uh, apparently attributed to him, where they said he supposedly said, "Yeah, I have many opinions, and sometimes I disagree with myself, and that's how I feel in in school." Okay, the next next thing I I remember with Evan. I had a big struggle in finding my own voice. I was very much into, I suppose I can put it categorically, at, in the 60s, I had a, a round 67, um, I guess the people who weren't born then here. Um, I had a, a, a crisis, an artistic <laughs> crisis, um, and realized that I can't handle the fact that I'm sort of stuck in England and I'm not American and I'm, I've got all these uh, mentor type or, or what do you call it, role models and that um, I didn't know how to handle that situation at all. So I was into playing big band jazz and um, small group jazz and I even had my, my own band which is I've never done that since, <laughs> uh, for, for different reasons. Um, and somebody suggested, it was in fact a BBC a, a radio producer who had a big band that I get in touch with. He could put <coughs> me in touch with the drummer who might be able to help me in my hour of need to find some way. And... He introduced me to Tony Oxley. I don't know if that's a name that means that. And Tony essentially was my uh, door into the uh, so-called improvising scene or the free music scene. We had different names for it at that time. And that was in, it was somewhat, I think, about middle of 1969. And uh, then he put the word, I was, I was nine years younger than him, so I was, quite, I was quite young. And he was a house drummer in a club called Ronnie Scott's, which is a, was a significant, at that time, I don't know how it is now, um, a significant uh, force for, for jazz. But he then introduced me to a guitar player, a strange man, called Derek Bailey. <laughs> strange, partly because they're from... Yorkshire. I don't know if that means <laughs> it. Um, and that is significant, actually. The Yorkshire people are very different from South English people. They have a reputation for telling you, speaking their minds, and doesn't matter what you think. I mean, there's all sorts of very well-known cases. Anyway, those two guys, Tony and Derek, came from Sheffield. And there's this north-south divide and often northern people in Britain hated the idea, especially musicians, hated the idea of having to go to London, the big smoke, because they're proud of their Manchester. The, the big city in North England for music was Manchester and to a lesser extent Sheffield. Um, I guess these are all names that you've got your own Manchesters here and Sheffield's, I guess. But... Um, Anyway, they made it down, and then, yeah, another significant factor was a summer school, a particular summer school that was running called the Barry Summer School, which was in Wales, and that was running, that had been, 
started by uh, this is all full of circles and circles and so it's hard to make this short um no need well i don't I'll everyone's see away when Paul. People close everyone's here yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, so yeah um i became part of the faculty on this uh faculty as uh, an exaggeration but one of the tutors or trainers on this summer school and um through this summer school uh, I was also one of the, I was a trainer student it was a strange position and one in 1969 for some reason the BBC decided to put on um recordings of the more let's say developed students at that in that particular year and uh through my contact with tony he put me onto zanarkis he put me onto penderesky he put me onto all sorts of stuff which other areas of music which i had not been interested in sort of european contemporary e, e music um sorry I've been living in Ger well with Germans like for 40 years now so my head has changed so sometimes I'm thinking e music means ounce music serious music um and uh they recorded a group and I actually wrote a composition which is like yeah a strange thought now for me but anyway <coughs> on the result of that broadcast I got a phone call from Evan, you know, the phone call, although I didn't. I didn't know what to think about that. And he said, well, would you like to come and should we play together? And from that point on, the end of 69, I think it was roughly September, it must have been around about that time, we uh, started to work together. Then, in 1970, this collective started, which was a collective of Derek, Bailey, Tony Oxley, Paul Rutherford, Howard Riley, um, Barry Guy and myself. And I think ten, sort of for about 10 seconds, John Stevens and a guy called Trevor Watts. I, mm. But they decided they don't want to be a member of a cult, which I could... Uh, <laughs> I didn't think like that at the time, but in fact, that's how it, it was, a sort of a cult. Um, yeah, I mean, it was appropriate for a specific time, but it... it around the, that, that time, of course, in the rest of the, the London scene, there was an amazing amount of stuff happening on the rock scene, uh, on the art school scene. I mean that hasn't I haven't seen much documentation there are some there is some stuff coming out in the next period which tend tries to put our 
little improvised start, so to speak, um, in the context of the bigger picture that was going on in Britain at the time. Because like when I was at school, for example, one of the guys in my class was having an affair with Paul McCartney's girlfriend's sister. <laughs> so, I mean, you were quite close. It, it did, to, you know, we were getting all this gossip about Jane Asher. I can't remember what her name was. And like, also, it, it, it was a bit like, it, reminds, it reminded me of the feeling when I first went to New York, that the celebrity culture is like on the street, in a sense. People, I think that's why John Lennon moved to New York, apparently, because he didn't feel that he was being attacked from all sides. He could sort of fade in, uh, well, as best he could into the background. And that's how it, it felt in um, London at that time. There, was all, there were all sorts of amazing energies and communications. And the art schools were very important in introducing ideas into, into different scenes. I mean, Stones came, a few of the people from Stones came out of art schools. They were touchable. These, um, and that was, that was amazing when I think back on that. Uh, and interestingly enough, in the English improvised scene, I would say, and that applies a little bit to the other European scenes that started up at that time. Well, although I'm three years into that period now, because the, the European improvised music started around 66 in Germany, <coughs> as well as in Holland. Uh, so that was the, I came in three years later. Um, so it was a little bit established, but not fully developed at that point. And art schools, in my memory, there were quite a number of people that had been to art school who were ideas merchants who brought all sorts of ideas into the music. They stayed and floated around for a bit and then split. They left their mark. And they were, in my mind, very important for also the development of the music. There was a drummer, percussion player, very interesting guy, I thought, but very difficult. Well, we're all difficult, but his name was Jamie Muir and he was an art school student and worked a lot with Derek. I mean, he was a drummer, but not a particularly accomplished drummer, but he had a lot of amazing ideas. And then he floated in, became a, a member of a group called King Crimson, I don't know if that's... Mm. And then just left, you know, the, he put his ideas... And art students played a very important role, um, for me, anyway, um, in throwing ideas about and juggling with ideas, because, like, in the co-op, we called it the London Musicians Co-op. I would say, if I think back, apart from Barry Guy, um, no, that's, no, that's not right. But most of the people came from the jazz scene. Uh, Barry Guy had had a tra uh, classical background. He'd been to music school. Paul Rutherford went to music school. Howard Riley went to music school. And the rest of us learnt it on the street. I mean, we had our lessons and all that, but... Uh, we were involved in the, the, the British version of the street music, which is what I always think of as where jazz belongs in, in, that, in, in that context. So, um, yeah, then this Musicians Cooperative started up. And where were the gigs happening? Ah, well, what kind of situations? Yeah, 
there was a tradition anyway of pubs um, and uh, sort of the, um, what would you call it, the upstairs room that they used for functions or working men's clubs, and the, the, but mainly the pubs. But that pub scene had been going for a long time. Like when I had my own group, so-called, you just needed to rent the upstairs room in a pub and then you played. And uh, if you wanted to, you could charge people at the door. Um, and that tradition, it was a very strong t tradition. And with Evan, um, we played for a long time, well, it seems like that, and in a particular pub in a, the west part of London, Doomsville, really. And uh, we played opposite AMM in this, and we had this regular once a week concert. Sometimes Derek Bailey would play. Uh, and uh, so, like, if Derek came, AMM wasn't playing, so then he had the bigger audience because there were two of us, me and Evan, and he was, he used to sit there and he was like, he was the only other guy listening to us. And we, you know, it was, it was a very strange, very strange scene that went on for quite, well, my memory is that it probably went on for quite a while, but probably wasn't as long as I thought it was. Um, and th those kind of, uh, that was the usual type of venue. But the co-op then started to look for other venues. And Tony, because of his contact to Ronnie Scott's club, <coughs> managed to persuade Ronnie Scott to um, let us use his club once a week. No, wrong. Once a month on a Sunday night. And that, I mean, there's, this has been, this, there's a lot of, there is some documentation about Ronnie Scott's and his support of the so-called avant-garde jazz scene uh, because there was an, Ronnie Scott's old place where he eventually closed that down and gave it over to the, the free scene. He wanted John Stevens to organize that. So there was a place where people like John Sermon, Mike Westbrook, uh, I don't know how many of these names, uh, uh, these are names out of the 60s, um, the sort of younger jazz-type players, I suppose you could say. And then, uh, so that was one scene that was happening, but I didn't actually ever play there. But when the, co the cooperative started to work, I did, well, we were involved in then, it was a self-organizing, organized system. So like Evan and I did the posters. There's a lovely, uh, we used, used to go out to Reading University, which is like outside of London, about 30 miles, and do these strange posters on silk screen, uh, silk screen the posters, and then come back into London and then hang them up. And I, there's one lovely story. Like, I used to have this little minivan. It was tiny. We used to run, you know, it's all illegal, this shit, hanging, hanging posters up. And I remember we were in the middle of the West, uh, the West End, and... I'm driving and trying to look, Evan couldn't drive, so I'm trying to look invisible. And he jumps out of the car and he's post, you know, he's pasting the wall with that thing. And this policeman comes along and stands behind him like this. And Evan's painting away and, uh, and um, gets the poster up and, the, and this, this guy's still looking at him. 
and Evan doesn't know what's happening and I turn the motor off and I'm rolling down the hill to get, <laughs> to get out of the way and then that was I look back and that's the end of Evan he's gone um, so I think oh dear because I was very involved with him and his family and his wife his wife at that time was Margaret and so I went back to his place and I told Margaret and we didn't know where he was and he'd been vanished you know so we phoned out we're trying to phone around all these police stations without giving away that I'm the other I'm the other part of this deal here you know like oh do you have uh, uh, yeah and we get we finally find one in a place called Notting Hill I don't know if that's a you should there's a film and uh do you have uh, a guy in there with a big beard and black he, and this guy said you mean Rasputin <laughs> <laughs> I said yeah he said, he, 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 yeah it sounds like I mean it was very when we had to bail him out uh, okay well that was that was one of the funnier aspects of it um, so we had then we had a little theater which was part of um, the left-wing what was left of the left-wing kind of... Uh, it was somehow associated with the unions, this, and it was called the Unity Theatre. And that was another venue that we... I mean, there have been quite a few uh, production, uh, record productions that have come out of that. So, like, there were different clubs, uh, different pubs, Ronnie Scott's, and then there was an, another person who's been written out of history, but we've tried to get her written back in. It was a woman called Janice Christiansen, and she ran uh, a place. Um, so there, there were a few places where we could play at mm -hmm. that time. And a lot of it was musician-organized. Well, in our case, it was all yeah. musician-organized. But we were a really small splinter group. I mean, there were all sorts of funny infighting between us and the... The, the sort of modal jazz scene, and then the bebop, what was left of the bebop scene. It was very difficult to organize that, but mm -hmm. we just were a hardcore group at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And so we did our thing. I got a question, now there's sort of a context for where everything was happening. Almost all the musicians you mentioned came out of, as you said, a jazz background, more main, like playing jazz as traditionally understood as jazz. What motivated the radical shift hmm. towards what may be called the English scene school at that time, because unlike the other European scenes that came out of the mid-late 60s in Germany and Holland, for example, which have a lot of influence still from the American scene, what became what I think musicians consider the English approach, which has got a lot of variety to it, of course, is very disconnected on the surface from the American tradition. What created the break or the motivation for, for such a radical break? an approach to time and sound? I can speak for myself. 
Um, some of this has been documented, I think. There are various books out, um, biographies, both about, for example, Derek and Tony. And um, their, their way, they had a group with a, a, another Yorkshireman called Gavin Bryars, who studied with Cage. And um, I think it's sort of documented why they... I think, I don't know, there's a point where you have to find yourself somehow. And, um, well, you well, I think all the musicians in that group were, say, had been through that point. Not everybody maybe has to go through that process, but uh, for, for whatever reason, um, we did. I certainly did. I, um, so it's, I can remember the excitement and the relief of finding that I was not alone in that and mm -hmm. these, these guys had been through that because I couldn't articulate what my problem was. I mean, I, I was into Elvin Jones, like seriously into Elvin Jones. Uh, that's what I, my illusion anyway. And uh, then it's like a bit of a shock. It's a dumb, naive way of looking at it, but you realize you, you just can't be that person, you know. Um, and, and not a, a guy from North London, uh, you know, dealing with... Um, I met Elvin Jones a couple of times through Tony, and that was a, a relief to meet him. Like, and I, at that point... I knew where I was going. Mm. So it was like fantastic to meet this guy. We didn't talk very much. <coughs> but then, you know, like you're the, co you're the source of my being where I am now. And mm. Uh, mm. I managed to break. And I think that happened possibly to some extent to all those guys. But exactly why that is, I, 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 I don't know. Well, in addition to that, though, part of my question is why that kind of break? You know, I mean, like in Holland, there was breaks for sure, and in Germany too, but the break of like a non-pulse-based music or a music that wasn't coming out of, let's say, the American free jazz scene of the mid-60s of like Albert Eiler's intensity, like connected to the German scene or parts of it, like this total deconstruction of time and sound is very specific to England and why. Right. I can, I can say that... Uh, some of us, not everybody. I, you need to talk to everybody in that. I can group. only talk to you right, right now. Right, right, right. Now, what I'm what, so to get exactly their take. But my take is that I took what I call a subtractive uh, view to it, a reductionist view. In other words, I was interested in seeing what would come out if I left certain <coughs> things out. Mm -hmm. That uh, if I look at the whole, the Dutch scene. Um, they take a more what I think of as an inclusive uh, approach. That they, they feel free to, to take from any source they want to and throw it into the mix. And of course, you get a kind of a, an original type of music that way, in a way. But uh, my approach, and, and when I, I don't do this very often, but when I listen back to all the stuff that Evan and I were, were doing, um, we were literally struggling to 
even less so than myself, maybe, um, looked at the, the way he's, the path that he's taken. Um, but it was to just not take the extreme reductionist view like that uh, people do, uh, or people did, say, 20 years later, where they literally, someone like Radu Malfatti, like, mm -hmm. took it down to, mm -hmm. you know, is he playing? Does he know if he's playing? Mm -hmm. or, uh, <laughs> um, can I... Uh, but, nevertheless, to exclude things and see what you're left with. Mm -hmm. And it was a very experimental, it was probably, in some ways, the, the most exciting period for me, because, like, it was just amazing every time we played. We played, I think, maybe once or twice a week, or maybe a, a bit more, um, at my parents' place. We could do that, the, the neighbours were deaf. Um, <laughs> and we made a hell of a lot of racket. I mean, we were trying also the influence, uh, the influence of so-called um, ethnic musics. Of that world, what was not what thought of today as world music, but music from Africa, India, all sorts of um, other sound sources um, to see what what you come up with. I, at the time when I met Evan, I, I'd learned tabla. I was learning tabla from a um, very, very uh, important Indian guy who was in South London, and he'd been through the tradition. He was an extraordinary player, but he was... And if you think the cutting between Western musicians is hard, between Indian musicians, it's like unbelievable. Uh, and when Ravi Shankar and uh, Alaraka f first came over to England, I mean, this guy's thought of them as absolute shit. You know, this, these guys can't play I mean, and uh, so at that time I was into a very rigid discipline of uh, Indian music, which I eventually had to leave because it was doing my head in. Uh, it was, seemed so contradictory to the other. They improvise, but they improvise in a way that's with set material. And we were looking for another set of sounds, or well, I certainly was. So it, it just was a subtractive way of playing, and in the end, I mean, it wasn't about playing jazz time, but there is a, in order to move the music forward, the, the, somehow or other, um, a kind of dynamic has to, be, has to be there. So that I found useful, having had a so-called jazz background, to somehow find a way of keeping the music in motion when we decided to do that. I mean, mm. when I listen back to that stuff now, it's hard. It's really hard music. It was uh, to listen to. I mean, just blocks of different tones using dogs, dogs' whistles, and all sorts of weird instruments that we built ourselves at high frequencies that are pulsing up and down. And people like they weren't used to that sort of stuff, and people thought, "Oh, this is painful." In fact, in the end, we tried to make them believe that it wasn't painful, so we said, you're going to get some strange effects in your ears here, and it's not pain, it's just new, um, but some of it's painful. <laughs> and um, it was a real experimental thing for me. But, you know, even amongst that group of people, there were people who were still somewhat tied to time. If you listen to Tony's um, playing, in that, he's very much pulsing, he's using 
there were specific things on the drums, like right, I'm right-handed, so right hand on the cymbal, left hand interpreting around the kit. Um, for me, we took, we came away from that and went into the classical percussion thing where both hands were on the drums or both hands were, we weren't think, or I wasn't thinking in terms of that conventional uh, kit idea at all. And that introduced all sorts of other possibilities for me. Mm-hmm. But the, the Derek, why and how he managed to get away from the time, Howard Riley came back to time. Mm-hmm. Evan likes a time, I mean, I don't know about the, the conventional time, but now this time he's working a lot with in groups where there is a kind of pushing, free, jazzy type of thing. I'd do that with him in, in other contexts. But uh, at that time, we weren't into that at all it was just had to be something different mm-hmm. and that was what came out that was the end of mm-hmm. lo- those that way of mm-hmm. approaching alternatives i didn't listen to records for years around that time i just stopped well not jazz records i had to forget it you know mm-hmm. like really focused in into to find something else it was quite a radical approach for me at that time anyway. <laughs> I have a question about improvising. Um, you've worked with Evan Parker since six, 1969, as you said. Uh, Derek Bailey frequently preferred to work in ad hoc groups or yep. not long-term projects. Um, what's your feeling about a music that's supposed to be based on risk and spontaneity and in the case of the idea of quote-unquote free improvisation, which is kind of a misnomer? Um, how you approach the freedom of that in a context where you work long-term with someone, like in the case of the trio with Barry Guy and Evan Parker, or do you subscribe to Derek Bailey's approach that the music is more free when there's less of a history? Uh, That's... I like both approaches. There are different qualities to the... So... I mean, this, I, my idea of freedom has changed to some extent over the years. I re, I've done very few interviews, and occasionally I do, because something comes up. I, re, I always refer back to the very first one I, I did, and it was full of bullshit, in fact, mm. from, what I, from my present perspective in terms of what free is mm. um, and what that means. Uh, I definitely <laughs> like the approach to put put a group together and let it self-organize. I mean, self-organization for me, in my own activities, probably is like high priority. Um, and allow the thing, the, for me, music is an emergent 
property of a, a group of musicians in a sense and like if you don't if you allow it to emerge through self-organization i think that you can come up with some amazing results naturally if you structure the music you can come up with some amazing results too it's just different it's a different way of of organizing mm -hmm. and controlling the music in a sense um so i very much like the idea of working with ad hoc groups but i do in the meantime well since quite a long time now uh have some reservations about just taking someone off the street so to speak who's got who's whose name has been banded around i mean if you look at derek's thing uh, with company the musicians that he chooses generally speaking are of a certain quality mm -hmm. i don't know if he would just go and into a, a crowd and pick someone out and say okay take this instrument and play he might find that interesting i i wouldn't necessarily find it interesting i don't think it's so difficult to play one gig with almost anybody who just makes a few sounds i mean it's like what happens after you've done that one gig uh, how much control or or yeah anybody can make a few noises um i don't necessarily find that a particularly satisfying experience but putting groups of musicians together diverse groups of musicians and then doing something I find, yeah, Derek's approach is okay, it's fine. It's, it's just not as free as he thinks it is, or thought it was, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, uh, for me. Mm -hmm. The other thing about playing in a, in a long-time partnerships is that it's the same thing like with long-time relationships with people. The qualities of things change. So like the changes in the, in the developments of the, and the playing um, get him get always a little bit more compact so you don't make if you've been playing after many years you you know the rough structures of how people play that can be very problematical of course because you're a prisoner of your own vocabulary anyway and the group's got certain expectations and the people have certain expectations even if they're unspoken expectations and your body develops i mean i have my evan parker barry guy trio muscles you know it's like you go into that's a gig and then your muscles are tuned up to work in that group and I, I find that sometimes extraordinarily frustrating because like if I make a, a move some, somewhere else that breaks the expectations they come down on me like a ton of bricks yeah. but having said that um, we don't play that, that often which is also probably good um, so that when we do play we still find new things not so so often and they're micro new things so to speak they're, but the, you start focusing down on the details then um the devil is in the details then if you've been playing like i don't know how long we've been playing 30 years as that trio or something mm. yeah uh it's still a, a very interesting group to work in but it's there's not so much risk taking of course um it doesn't deal the group doesn't deal so easily with failure as and improvisation for me is all about failure and how you deal with failure um so it has its thing and i think both approaches uh i like both of them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you say that like around 1970 
you had these like radical breakthroughs in, in your playing and the excitement of that period. Um, my math isn't ideal. Well, let's say it's been 40 plus years since that those series of breakthroughs. As a creative person, um, how do you approach finding new terrain? How do you approach challenging yourself and continuing well into a later the period? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, one way that I, I deal with that is by practicing very conventional drums. It sets up certain tensions in me which I can then break a whole load of rules. So I set up my own fantasy structures in a way um, so that I can break those rules. That's one approach that I take. Uh, it's very hard for me to set my stuff up at home and then practice improvised music. Mm -hmm. I mean, improvising for me is generally about working with other musicians. Playing solo has a lot of built-in dangers. The people that do a lot of solo, um, solo work, in my view, have to be very careful about developing fixed ideas about organization and of course this is different problematic because if you're playing a set of 45 minutes and you have to structure that you have to pace that and if you're doing that continuously you start developing habit patterns uh, which we all have and then if you're unaware of those factors you can start laying those habit patterns on the people that use it sets up a set of expectations that when you work in other groups those expectations as of control and uh, also there and some people seem to be unaware of that and that sets that reduces the freedom of the other musicians automatically um, so uh, solo playing is not one of my main uh, things but I think solo playing is also a, a way a means of um, enabling your you to reflect on your material as well mm -hmm. because you have to deal with a certain length of time you're paid to do a gig and you have to think about it somehow mm -hmm. or deal with it so i think that can that's also a way that i i like from time to time but it's not my main um otherwise i try to switch my head off when i'm playing mm -hmm. and let the thing play itself in a way so um there's a lot of events that take place uh this as i said this isn't my usual solo um, equipment i use tables and i have homemade electronics and there are lots of things that happen that happened here where things fall off the they it plays you know it's a bit like automatic writing uh, these things seem to take on a life of their own so they hit the floor and they add a bit of sound that happens I, i'm not specially controlling it but i see that as an integral part of the of the music and i don't mind that i mean mm -hmm. uh of course, when other people, when I work with other people, they find that irritating, I think. Um, yeah, but okay, that's my charm. Um, <laughs> um, I just want to ask one last question and then turn it over to yeah. questions of people. Uh, you've been painting, mm. and I, there's some images. It's not the most ideal projection system for seeing paintings, but at least we get a rough idea of what you're working on. Um, as we're looking at the images, I was wondering if you could describe why you've been delving into this and why, or what relationships it might have to music, or do you see an interface there that's important to you? Um, things of that nature. Okay, I mean, in fact, I was gonna be a painter before I was a musician, if my memory 
seriously. Um, so this was as a young kid. I, because of the my parents and the activities of my mother, particularly, she was involved in the in an arts centre in a, a, in North London where I was born, and had contact to a lot of artists, and I was quite heavily, uh, as a kid can be, involved in art. And they, my memory, I've checked this out with my brother, so it's a little bit corroborated, uh, was that I, they thought I was going to go into painting. And I was just saying before that that got drummed out of me when I moved into high school. I guess that's up from the fifth grade on or sixth grade. And, and we, I had a teacher that was, I was into abstract painting at that time, an oil painting, and she wanted me to paint flowers. And like, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to do that. So within six months, the drive to be a painter was, was wrecked. I mean, it was, yeah. So okay. when you were in sixth grade, you were working with abstract? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, wow. And then I carried that on a bit at home. And uh, so then, the, through the schooling and my education, uh, that got pushed to the background. And I'd, I'd been uh, dabbling with music all the time, trying out different instruments and not settling on anything. And finally, my parents said to me, well, I was about how old was I, 14? They said, well, what in, we think that because of the pressure of school and the, uh, the system, maybe you'd like to have a real serious go at an instrument because before then I'd been playing the violin, I'd tried to go at the piano. And uh, I said, okay, yeah, I'd like to be a bass player. And the bass was too expensive to buy an instrument. They didn't trust me anymore because I tried all this other stuff. <laughs> So they weren't going to risk, well, they didn't have the money anyway. They weren't going to risk buying uh, an instrument. And they knew somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody. And uh, I said, okay, then I'll try the drums. And so they were prepared to buy me a snare drum and a hi-hat. And I had my, my lessons, and that's what happened. Mm. And so going back into the painting, I've tried it at different crisis points in my life, but not carried it on. And for some reason... A few years ago, not so long ago, I thought, okay, now I'm going for it. I mean, there's an, a, a wise thing like every a statement from some wise group of people that everything returns to its source. Maybe that's my source, I don't know. Mm. So I thought, okay, I'll try it. And uh, materials had changed. I mean, you've got all these acrylics. The one connection that I can see between my painting, or my attempts at painting anyway, and is that I mix the stuff on the canvas. I don't mix up, which is what I do on the drums, really. I just put the stuff on the drums and mix it up. 